Welcome to This Climate Business, the podcast about turning the climate crisis into an opportunity. I'm Vincent Herringer. Every week I talk to entrepreneurs, investors and experts about what they're doing to solve the climate crisis and get New Zealand down to zero emissions by 2050 or sooner. This Climate Business is brought to you by Podcasts New Zealand. Last week, the Labour Party unveiled an election promise to bring forward by five years the goal of 100% renewable electricity generation to 2030. It means New Zealand would join nations such as Iceland and Norway in leading the world in renewables and reinforce Jacinda Ardern's commitment to addressing climate change. It is, after all, her generation's nuclear-free moment. But not everyone is impressed. Greenpeace has called the policy stingy, and climate change journalist Mark Dalder describes it as a red herring. So is going 100% renewable by 2030 a bold plan for emissions reductions, or is it an expensive distraction while the rest of the country burns? I'm joined now by that very journalist, uh, Mark Dalder from Newsroom, and by Greenpeace Energy spokesperson Amanda Larson. Thank you both for joining me on this climate business. Thanks Yeah, this was the point where you um, lavish uh, effusive praise uh, <laughs> for joining me on the program, uh, which I accept with uh, gratitude. Hey, well, Mark, thanks for joining us. You've written a terrific piece in Newsroom summarising your concerns about this uh, election promise, which uh, at one level is very exciting. I mean, it's uh, why wouldn't we be excited uh, about moving to an emissions, a lower emissions target earlier. Um, so we'll get to your criticisms in a minute, but um, what is the policy, Mark? Can you summarise it for us? Yeah, I mean, the headline of the policy is um, Labour originally committed, has previously committed to making the electricity generation in New Zealand 100% renewable by 2035. Um, so the headline, headline in this policy is move that forward five years to have 100% renewable electricity generation by 2030. Um, there's a few other things involved in there as well. There's a promise of $70 million to help uh, build a pumped hydro scheme at Lake Onslow if the ongoing sort of business case investigation finds that such a scheme would be viable. Um, and there's a few regulatory changes to make it easier to uh, build renewable energy, including solar uh, generation, including sort of residential solar generation. But um, for the most part, the, the headline items are that 100% renewable by 2030 target and the 70 million or promise of 70 million for a pump pipe scheme in Lake Onslow. Well, it gets my vote, but uh, Amanda, you have described it as stingy. Why is that? Um, I'm looking at it in the context of the COVID recovery budget and the government is injecting billions of dollars into the economy at the moment. Uh, that's something I haven't seen in my lifetime. And this kind of cash injection just means we have so many opportunities, um, particularly to invest in the transition to a zero carbon economy. And that's what the government have said their intention is, the Labour-led government. But what we've seen in this policy from Labour is, in my opinion, just kind of loose change thrown at feasibility studies, um, at some pilot projects. Um, and these are all good things, don't get me wrong, like it's all taking us in the right direction, but I would describe it as tiptoeing in the right direction instead of running in the direction of a low carbon economy, which is what we need because, you know, the world is literally on fire at the moment. We're seeing it in California, in Siberia, in the Amazon. Um, 
So, you know, where's the investment to tangibly reduce emissions right now by helping people install wind turbines, by helping people make their next car electric? Um, yeah, I guess another way of putting it um, is that it's just not a very transformational vision. And we're just seeing a bit more money going to a bit more of the same things that labor is already doing. Um, and it's not really delivering on that nuclear free moment that you mentioned earlier. Mm. Mark, do you agree with that? Is that why you've called it a red herring? Yeah, I think that um, broadly, I agree with what Amanda's saying. Uh, for, for me, the focus is less about, um, you know, what percentage uh, of cash this makes up out of the recovery budget, but more just the idea that uh, this is what labor will point to as their crowning climate policy for the next three years. Uh, if they get into government, this is what they'll they'll point to when, when they're asked about climate action. And uh, the problem is that electricity generation doesn't really make up all that much of our uh, emissions. You know, it's about 4.2%, I think, of the country's total emissions. Um, compare that to agriculture, which is 48%, transport, which is 19%. And these are things that labor doesn't really have policies to reduce emissions on. And we've seen over the past term of government how if you ask the prime minister, you know, why are emissions still rising and why are they expected to rise through 2025 when other countries around the world have managed to decrease emissions over the past few decades while maintaining economic uh, productivity. And she'll say, well, we've done the oil and gas ban on, on offshore exploration. We've done the Zero Carbon Act and we've got the One Billion Trees program. Those are three things that are very good. But you know, our emissions are still projected to rise for five more years, which is stunning when the world as a whole has been tasked with halving emissions by the end of the decade. Mm. So the two areas that you think need addressing urgently are transport and agriculture. Is that what you're saying? That's correct. And and there are other, you know, parts of our emission profile that could uh, be addressed, industrial process, heat, um, waste as well. And, and electricity generation is a worthy target, but it can't be our only climate policy. And the concern is that under labor, it w would be. So one of the, uh, Amanda, we'll come to your thoughts about transport and agriculture in a minute, but I guess one of the concerns about this last, what would it be, the last 16% of our electricity generation, Mark, is mm -hmm. that what we're talking about? So getting that converted to renewables, there's a there's a real cost there, isn't there? What is that cost? And people talk about this um, this threat of overbuilding. Can you explain that? Yeah. Um, this Taking a step back and looking at our electricity system, we've got uh, a system that is really reliant on hydroelectric power. What that means is, A, our system is mostly renewable, which is a good thing, um, fewer emissions than other countries. But what it also means is that when there's a year where there's less rain, which is more and more likely to happen as climate change sort of intensifies, we have to have some sort of backup way of generating electricity. At the moment, we do that through burning fossil fuels because you can just stock up on some fossil fuels and when there's a dry year, you can just burn them and you have you know, plenty of electricity as, as a backup. If so you want to have a totally- Gas-fired and coal-fired, so this is Huntley and uh, Otahu. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay. If you want to have a fully renewable electricity system, what that might mean is building more electricity generation than you need in, the, in any given year, such that you actually have enough to make up the slack when you do enter a dry. Um, so that's a concern with overbuilding. There are ways to work around that. You could have a battery uh, like South Australia has. They have a massive Tesla built uh, battery, which stores power that's generated during 
uh, for them, it's mostly solar. So during sunny days, and you can use that and rely on, on it in winter. Um, there's a, also this possibility of a pumped hydro scheme, which would make it a lot easier and give us a lot more reliability in dry years. Um, but at the moment, the, the overbuilding would be a, a major concern for New Zealand. The Interim Cli Climate Change Committee was tasked with evaluating whether this uh, originally 100% renewable by 2035 target was justifiable or, or doable. And they determined actually by 2035, we're going to have 93% renewable electricity anyways. Anyway. That's good enough for now. And if you really try and pursue that last 7%, you're going to push power prices up because of this overbuilding problem. So they found that the average residential power price would jump by 14% over the next 15 years, about 30% increase for commercial electricity costs and 40% for industry. So right. it wouldn't be, um, it's not necessarily the most cost-effective way of tackling emissions, especially as we've seen when it represents so few emissions out of our emissions profile. That's right. So we've got potentially a high cost for what would be a low return anyway. Um, Amanda, the two sectors that you've identified, transport, oh, sorry, three, three sectors that Mark identified, transport, um, uh, it's Monday morning, I need another coffee. Agriculture. <laughs> Agriculture and processed heat. What are your thoughts about, well, let's start with transport. You know, the government has tried and failed with a fee-bait scheme to incentivise the you know, import of EV vehicles. This is politically really difficult, right? So practically speaking, you know, what can we do with our transport fleet to electrify it? Yeah, um, I think there's a bigger story than just replacing um, petrol and diesel cars with electric cars. Um, so New Zealand has the highest car ownership per person in the OECD. Um, we also have really inefficient cars because we um, don't have any fuel efficiency standards. And that's why transport is the fastest growing source of carbon emissions in New Zealand. Um, but the solution isn't just about electrifying the cars that we have, it's about mode shift. So offering people convenient alternatives to driving around um, and again going back to this COVID recovery budget um, and the focus on infrastructure we have such a huge opportunity um, to build up the public transport networks that we need within our cities but also between regions so that people don't have to fly between regions or drive between between regions um, and also to build out active transport networks um, making it easier for people to bike to work or to school um, and so on and yeah we have a massive opportunity around it but then of course we will still have people driving cars and we do need to electrify those cars um, and I think what we're seeing in other parts of the world I think it's 14 countries and 20 cities have introduced a kind of date by which you won't be able to drive a fossil fuel vehicle anymore uh -huh. um, and we've been advocating for New Zealand to stop importing petrol and diesel cars in 2030 just to to get them off the roads um, but yeah right now there's no incentive really for people to, to purchase an electric car and that's why we've got something like 60 times as many gas guzzlers coming into the country as we do electric cars at the moment so That's all the incentives are the wrong way around and and mark knows a lot more about this than i do so can probably go into more detail there <clears throat> well i think it's kind of deliciously ironic that in the meantime there's this massive resounding boom happening behind you amanda as the city rail loop <laughs> <laughs> being built. Um, so for the listeners wondering what that crashing sound is, that's public transport being built. I mean, Mark, 
we are taking initiatives, right? The city railing is being built. Uh, charging networks are being installed throughout the country. You can't say that the government is entirely and industry is entirely sitting on its hands. For instance, you know, in this announcement, they're talking about incentivizing or encouraging more investment into hydrogen. Yeah, uh, I think you're you're right that it's it's would be unfair to say that nothing is being done. I think the problem is that the scale of action needed is is, is just not being met, and that scale of action is more scientifically determined than politically determined. It's it's based on what uh, experts think we need to do to keep warming within a 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels uh, sort of threshold, um, and you know if you want to go for two degrees, that gives us a more bit more leeway. If you want to go to for three degrees, that gives us even more leeway. But the Zero Carbon Act gives New Zealand a, a legal mandate to ensure that its emissions are, are consistent with a 1.5 degree pathway. So that's um, a you know pretty bold sort of legislative requirement that now means the government has uh, has to be following scientific advice to reduce emissions in, in line with with that target, mm -hmm. and it just mm -hmm. isn't going to be doing that. Um, you know, the, the government has reviewed its Paris target, for example, and found that that is not consistent with a 1.5 degrees pathway. And even the Paris target that we've set, we're not going to meet without buying carbon credits from overseas. Um, so yes, green hydrogen is good. You know, yes, public transport investment is good. Um, it's just not happening enough. And, and, and that's just sort of how the math backs up. So let's look at those other two areas, agriculture. So um, Amanda, what, what has to happen with agriculture? We, we've we are an agricultural nation. We, we cannot yeah. punish our farmers more and expect us to be competitive. Uh, so this is a real political conundrum. Even on the news this morning, what did I hear about um, the Green, Green Party's suggestion about um, a tariff or um, uh, a tax on, um, on fertilisers? The farming community is saying, look, we're working on this. We're dragging ourselves into a low-carbon economy but I assume that that's not fast enough for you. What What are you suggesting? Um, I think if if we're going to be forward thinking about the agriculture system, um, taking a look at what our overseas markets want us to produce. Um, in Europe, for example, the demand for organic produce is skyrocketing um, and their demand far exceeds the supply that they've got within the European Union itself. Um, so they're importing heaps of organic produce. And the markets for plant-based are also skyrocketing at the moment. So if you just look at where the trends are going, if we're going to be a forward-thinking agricultural nation, then we should be producing um, organic and plant-based foods, basically. So I think the resistance, in my opinion, from what I can see, the resistance is more about path dependency and kind of being locked into a certain way of doing things. And there are a lot of farmers in New Zealand who want to be able to move into regenerative organic farming, but who face a lot of barriers um, because of, you know, demands from banks or being in lots of debt from buying lots of inputs like fertilizer and so on. Um, so I think what we need to see is some real proactive effort from the government. Um, the Greens have gone some way to, to committing some investment in supporting farmers to transition to regenerative agriculture. We haven't seen that yet from, from the two big parties, from either Labour or National. Um, but there's huge opportunities there. And the thing that I really love about regenerative farming is it's not just about kind of stopping the bad. There's 
heaps of potential to actually reverse a lot of the damage that agriculture has caused. And, and mm-hmm. agriculture isn't just our biggest climate polluter. It's also, you know, the biggest source of contaminated drinking water, and, you know, which we, which we rely on. We have to have safe drinking water. So this is a way of farming that mimics natural systems instead of using fertilizer and pesticides and irrigation and so on. You're just creating diversity on the farm with heaps of different species of pasture, lots of different types of animals, trees, tree crops all sort of integrated onto the farm. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the science shows that it can be just as, if not more profitable than conventional farming um, because you're reducing the amount of inputs that you're having to purchase to put in on the farm. Mm-hmm. So it's, I, from my perspective, it's a win-win solution. Um, people just, in particular farmers, just need a bit of support to be able to move and transition into that way of farming. Mark, uh, just focusing on the emissions profile of agriculture, are there things that Amanda's talked about going to have the desired impact in reducing emissions in that sector? So agriculture is a bit of an odd one because, um, I mean, for starters, the goal that's and set for methane reduction isn't net zero by 2050. Uh, it's sort of, uh, I don't remember the exact range, something like 20 to 47% uh, reduction by, by 2050. So they have a bit more leeway to um, not have to make, I guess, quite the same drastic cuts as we'll have to make in, in transport or um, other, other sectors. Although uh, emissions from nitrous oxide, which is a long-lived gas, will still be counted under that net zero target. Um, and a lot of that comes from things like synthetic fertilizers, which, which can be uh, phased out, but a lot of that also just comes from actually uh, how cows, you know, urinate and, and how that interacts with with the environment. Um, I, I'll be honest that I I haven't got the exact sort of, uh, and I don't think there has been as much focused on exactly how uh, a shift towards sustainable farming, you know, what the exact emissions reductions numbers would be from that compared to you know for each fossil fuel vehicle you swap out for an EV or something like that, mm-hmm. you'll get this many this many tons of, of emissions reduced. Um, but you know, I think that the the vision that Amanda sketched out here is one of a, a transformation for the agriculture sector, and that's kind of the sort of perspective we need to be taking for all of our different sectors: um, agriculture, transport, industry, and so on. Because you know. The way we live our lives, the way our economy and society operates, emits greenhouse gases to a degree that's not sustainable. Um, and we need to be thinking in, in sort of fundamentally transformative ways about going back to the basics of, of what makes these sectors work and keeping the things that, that we need from them for transport and mobility, for agriculture, you know, food production, and, and getting rid of the things that, you know, maybe are, are a nice bonus or, or, or not a nice bonus, but add in those emissions and, and those, those greenhouse gases. There uh, is quite a lot in this Labour Party uh, statement. And uh, let's just look at a couple of other things that are in there that um, they would claim would be transformative. So so let's look at the hydro scheme um, in Lake Onslow. Where is Lake Onslow for a start? I don't know where it is. Uh, Central Otago. Okay, great. And uh, uh, what's the proposition? So... Um, and this is, you know, if there's a transformative part of the policy that's been announced, it would be this Lake Onslow scheme. Essentially, um, the idea is a pumped hydro scheme, which has been done in other countries but hasn't yet been done in New Zealand, in which you take a, you have a Lake Onslow, you build a large reservoir on a sort of cliff above the lake, and you spend five years pumping water out of the lake into the reservoir. Then when you get a dry year, or even perhaps when, when power prices uh, are too high or, or what have you, you can let some of that water go down through a hydroelectric station 
and that would create power. Essentially, it creates a, a hydroelectric station that you can turn on whenever you'd like. And then mm. when power prices are real cheap, you can spend a little bit of money to pump water back out of the lake, back up into the, the reservoir. Um, that, that solves your dry year problem. And it, it kind of acts as a battery in, in a way uh, in terms of storing that electricity until you need to generate it. Um, and it would cost a, a lot of money and, and be a, you know, boon for construction jobs in the region, um, which is another part of the reason that, that labor will be looking at that. It was rec recommended by the interim climate change committee when they determined, look, don't go for 100% renewable by 2035, but take a look at this pumped hydro thing and see if it'll work out. Um, so, so that could have a very significant impact. And we do know if we want to be electrifying industry and transport, we're going to need more renewable generation anyways. And, and this is one of the ways where you could get there. So as I understand it, there are at least a couple of objections. One is that it's still far removed from where the energy is needed, particularly the North Island and particularly north of Hamilton, right? So we are still creating this uh, transmission problem of having our generation in the south and our customers in the north. Uh, uh, does this have to come also then with a, an expensive rebuild of the main grid? Um, I'm not actually sure. I imagine there would be some level of, of transmission and, and grid-related investment needed. Um, that's already going to be going on as well with the likely closure of the TY Point aluminium smelter to reroute some of that electricity up north. Um, the other objections uh, to it are, are centered around the environmental impact of, of building a massive reservoir in a, mm. a sort of heritage wetland, is my understanding. And, you know, it's a massive project. You want to do vet the business case and make sure that it really is going to, to do what it'll, it'll say it will do. Um, because, you know, if you're spending $4 billion building a large reservoir above a lake that you hope to turn into a sort of uh, man-made lake, it's, it's, it, it's, it exists in other countries, but it does sound a little bit science fiction and you want to make sure you can do it there. The, really the other thing about science fiction, given that we've, we've, you know, we've built these things before, but Amanda, we've stopped building dams f precisely because of the environmental impact. I mean, I think Manapuri was, uh, you know, an iconic uh, moment in New Zealand history for kickstarting the conservation mm -hmm. movement. What are your, what's Greenpeace's stance on building such a, a big dam? Yeah, I mean, we're aware that there are likely ecological impacts from um, the creation of the reservoir, as Mark was saying. Um, I think, in my opinion, we support a feasibility study that is going to look at the environmental impacts and also there's treaty issues that need to be explored. Um, so I think it's sort of our position on it remains to be seen until that feasibility work is done and an environmental impact assessment actually exists. Mm. Um, I mean, the, the thing with Onzo is I think the reason that people really like it is because it feels like a silver bullet solution to the dry year problem. It's just one project and then you sort of um, have it over and done with in terms of this big central issue that exists within our energy system. But there are other ways to do this. It just looks like a multitude of different um, initiatives around improving energy efficiency, um, you know, uh, building a lot more wind in lots of different parts of New Zealand so that the wind is blowing constantly at some place in the country. Um, there's There are solutions around, uh, Mark mentioned TY, um, uh, there's solutions around kind of reducing output at TY during a dry year um, in order to fill that gap. So 
there are other ways to do it. They're just not as neat and tidy as build this one scheme and it'll fix all your problems. Mm. I mean, it kind of goes to the politics of this, right? That uh, it is a signature policy. It's given, it's created a lot of uh, media coverage for um, for Labour. Uh, it was uh, a real moment for Jacinda to stand and talk about it. Um and if I was to ask you sort of on a scale of, you know, cynical virtue signaling on one side and transformative on another, where does this sit politically for you, Amanda? Uh, you know, is it, do you have some, I suppose, some sim- sympathy that uh, we do need these moments, these kind of signature moments where uh, there is a, an indication, I guess, of a shift in the way that New Zealand operates as a, you know, as as a, um, not just in energy, but as a, as a way of um, saying to the populace, look, this is the direction we need to go mm. in. Yeah, I mean, the, the optimist in me wants to see the, the world that you've just described, and that's kind of what I'm clinging to, this idea that, um, you know, Labour is, the, or the Prime Minister in particular, is kind of personally vested in dealing with climate change, sees the issues around it, and... Um, sees what needs to be done, but is maybe being a bit tactical about how how quickly and how exactly to um, to make that transition happen without, I guess, spooking the horses too much. Um, so that's one way of, like, the kind of optimistic way of looking at it is Labour is going to have heaps of transformational policies in the future. This is just the kind of warm-up to get people on side. Um, I guess the pessimistic way of looking at it is I see, you know, every policy that the Labour Party has released so far this election looks pretty calculated, like it creates just enough controversy for there to be headlines, but not quite enough controversy or transformation for it to really um, kind of for anyone to really disagree with it. And we've seen that with the Matariki policy as well um, and with this energy policy. So. Um, I'm not really sure, like time will tell whether or not this was just like a really clever strategy to to bring the whole of New Zealand along with um, the, the zero carbon transition. Um, we'll have to see in three years time if Labour is elected this time around, whether or not um, they are living up to their kind of transformational vision that they sold at the, the last election. Mm. How about you, Mark? Where do you sit on that scale of cynical and inspiring? I, I think it would be hard to argue with the idea that Jacinda Ardern is a small C conservative, right? She doesn't like to spend political capital if she doesn't have to. Um, you can see this with the capital gains tax. You can see it with climate change. You can see it with a wide array of things. Um, and I think Amanda's sort of correctly outlined, you know, the labor policy this election is let's see if we can fix some things, but not in such a way that would leave us open to attack from national or, or from the greens for that matter. Um, you know, an extra small marginal tax rate. Yes, you, you know, the rich should pay a little bit more, but not so much more that when I get rich, I should have to pay, you know, something that I would consider to be unfair. Um, you will tell us about with, it when you reach that point, won't you, Mark, what it feels like? <laughs> As a journalist, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely expecting to make 180K at some point. Um, <laughs> the, the other thing about it is that there's not actually a strong mandate for action on climate. Um, there's a strong mandate for rhetoric on climate. You know, people, if you ask New Zealanders whether they care about climate change, they're more likely to say yes than, than many people in other countries, according to, to a number of different polls. Um, 
At the same time, if you ask them how satisfied they are with their government's performance, they're more likely to say they're satisfied. And that's with emissions rising in New Zealand. They're more likely to say they're satisfied than Brits, who have had emissions decrease by 40% over since 1990, whereas New Zealand's emissions are still rising. You know, people in New Zealand don't actually understand climate policy because they, they think, yes, greenhouse gases, they think, um, you know, environment, really, instead of climate. Uh, and they don't really grasp, I think, that it's about economics and it's about numbers. It's not about... Um, the environment, really. Um, and, and until that changes, until people are willing to stand up and say, actually, what I'd like to see is, is not just someone say something about climate change, but I'd like to see the specific policy on transport or agriculture or industrial process heat. Um, there's not really a mandate for politicians to, to go ahead and, and do it. You know, New Zealanders are are loath to give up milk and, and dairy. They're loath to, to stop driving places. And as long as that's the case, why would a government uh, say this is what you're going to have to do uh, in order to stop climate change? Amanda, it sounds like you've still got a lot of hard work ahead of you to um, <laughs> educate and convince New Zealanders to make some kind of change. Yeah, I mean, the good news is, like Mark says, that most New Zealanders are concerned about climate change and are concerned about water quality and the destruction of nature. It's just translating that in that concern into awareness of what kind of policies and politics are actually going to shift those problems. And I think, you know, the more we're seeing this kind of altered climate reality playing out in front of us, the more appetite there's going to be for understanding the solutions and pushing for them. Okay, yeah. great. And more reason for us to have more shows. So, uh, look, I promised you that you would I'd release you to go into God's work uh, this morning. So thanks for joining me, uh, Amanda Larson and Mark Dolder. Um, and we look forward to having you on the show again. Yeah, thank cool. you so much for having, so having much. me. Yeah, it's our pleasure. Thanks. And um, just to listeners, thank you for listening and downloading. Please do share this show on your social channels. And remember, we are part of Podcast NZ, which is a family of podcasts. There's a lot more to listen and, and indulge yourself in uh, on our website, podcasts.nz. Thanks for joining us. And nohora. Thanks for listening to This Climate Business. I hope you enjoyed the program. There are more episodes as well as notes and blogs on our website, thisclimatebusiness.com. I'm Vincent Herringer, and if you know someone who deserves to be interviewed on our show, email me, vincent at thisclimatebusiness.com, or find me on Twitter, vherringer, that's two E's, one R. Meanwhile, I'll be back same time next week, and no hurrah.